Well, good morning again. Uh, it is great to be with you. If you do have a Bible, do please leave it open at that passage. I think it'll make a lot of difference uh, to your experience of this sermon and generally. I think it'd be helpful if you could do that. Um, I was going to start also by thanking my brother-in-law uh, for in- inviting me to preach until I had a look at the passage. I mean, what do you do with this? It's, it's, it's a whopper, and we're only going to focus on this passage. It's actually 21, 22, and 23. And what is it all about? The details are clear, aren't they? They're not too complicated. Uh, Acts chapter 21 to 23 tells the story of what happens when Saul, Paul, returns home to Jerusalem, his hometown, after almost 20 years away and three incredibly successful missionary journeys. Uh, and it does this by showing us three very different responses from different groups. One, from the believing Jewish community in Jerusalem, verses 17 to 20. Second, from Paul himself, verses 20 to 26. And third, from the, the wider Jewish community as a whole. And we see those in the rest of the chapter chapters. Uh, and it's a response to Paul and to the news of uh, people being saved, sinners being saved through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, because these two things are very closely connected, just as we might say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is Facebook, right? He kind of represents it. Um, Colonel Sanders is finger-licking good chicken, or it used to be a while ago, yeah? In the same way, Paul is mission to the nations. That's who he is. That's what he represents. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. So that when we watch how people treat Paul, we actually know what they think about this whole idea. The two go together. So that's all pretty clear. The question is, why do we need to see these responses today? What is it that they're meant to show us? And we'll come to that later. But basically, we're going to see three reactions and what they reveal about these people and about ourselves. So let's pray. And then let's uh, take a look. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the glories of your word and the wonders of the story it proclaims and the grace that we find there. And Father, we pray that your grace might be at work again today, uh, that you might open our minds and our hearts to the great things that you are doing in this world and that you will help us to respond with uh, thanksgiving, joy and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, for those of you who've been coming, you've been part of this series, I, I understand, uh, on the book of Acts. And uh, you'll notice that today's passage is a bit of a climax for the book um, as Saul returns, or Paul returns to where it all began uh, after he left on a very different mission so many years ago. Remember, he was Saul the Pharisee when he headed out, persecuting and disrupting the church. And here he is all these years later. And the question is, as we read, how is he going to be, re- how is he going to be received? By his countrymen. Now, if you've been looking at chapter one, you'll notice that uh, we've already been told. Uh, Paul tells his Ephesian friends they'll never see him again. And in chapter ten, uh, twenty-one, he's warned twice in verse four and verse verse twelve not to go to Jerusalem because of what is going to happen to him there. Do you remember Agabus, the prophet? Um, this is what they're going to do to you. He takes his belt out. They're going to tie you up and hand you over to the Gentiles, just like they'd done to Jesus beforehand. So there's good reason for us to be concerned as we're reading. Uh, Well, let's have a look at the first response then of the the believing Jews 
in chapter 1, verses 17 to 20. Verse 17, the believing Jews. When we'd come to Jerusalem, Luke says, remember he's travelling around with them, the brothers and sisters received us gladly. It's a good response, isn't it? And he's not just telling us that the early church was full of kind and hospitable people. By welcoming Paul, these Jewish believers are basically expressing their approval for the mission. In the same way that uh, you remember when Jesus sends out the 72 to the the, the villages of Israel, you can tell who responds to him by how they respond to the messengers. Those who welcome the messengers, they're welcoming Jesus. Those who reject him, that's what they're doing to Jesus. Same here. And sure enough, as we read on verse 18, we see that all the leaders of the church gather together to hear Paul tell them one by one all the things that God had been doing among the nations through his ministry. And what do they do when they hear? Look at verse 20. They glorify God for the things that he was so clearly doing beyond the boundaries of Israel. It's a very good response, but it's much more than this because we need to remember that uh, for the Jews of first century Palestine, they hated the nations. It's a strong word, but it's true. The Gentiles existed, it was said, to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's why we have them. Uh, the, uh, we know of families who went so far as to conduct funeral services for their daughters if they married someone outside of Israel. Because as far as they were concerned, she was dead to them now. The animosity uh, is serious here. So that the idea of, of someone going around and preaching love and forgiveness to these people must have been quite something to get used to. And don't forget, it's at the time that Paul turns up, it was even harder because there was no clear separation between the, the Jewish community at large and this new fledgling Christian community. They were all mixed together. There wasn't so much a, a church and this Jewish nation. They all met together at the temple each week. So that for you to welcome Paul and to welcome the idea of the gospel going to the nations must have been to tip a whole bunch of trouble on yourself, from your friends, from your community. This was, this was uh, tough stuff. And yet they didn't just receive Paul, they received him gladly, praising God for what he had been doing, because at the end of the day it was all his work, right? It had been God who'd chosen and appointed and converted and sent out this missionary to the very nations he too had once despised. It had been God who'd opened the hearts of uh, people all across Turkey, Greece, Syria and beyond. Paul hadn't done that. It had been God who'd guided his steps. It had been God who'd protected him all the way. So that however hard it must have been to swallow and however much they must have suffered for it, these Jewish believers were all for this. God's done it. This is good. We're all for this. Praise God, brother Paul. How good to hear your news. Well, the second response we see, uh, Luke turns the tables, and we actually now hear Paul's response to the news of gospel growth in Israel in verses 20 to 26, because while he'd been busy abroad, it wasn't as if God had been doing nothing back home. In fact, look at verse 20. They say to Paul, Do you see, brother? 
how many thousands there are also among the Jews who've believed. While Paul had been busy preaching the gospel overseas, a revival had broken out in Israel as well through the preaching of the other apostles. A a terrific spiritual harvest. And uh, it's just wonderful news. They're they're sharing because they're excited. And yet this this harvest had also created a problem that Paul would need to, to know about as he faced things as he went into town. Because these new Jewish believers, we're told, verse 20, were also zealous for the law. They loved Jesus, but they also loved the law and the traditions. Uh, the word we get, uh, our word, modern word zealot from, or fanatic, they were fanatical about the law. And we're told that they'd heard some pretty dodgy stuff about Paul. So there's good news and bad news. The good news, Paul, is that there's all these new believers in town. The bad news is, well, they've heard some pretty bad things about you. The question is, what should be done? What should happen next? What would you expect should happen next? Here he is, remember, Paul is the greatest missionary of all time after the most successful missionary, uh, missionary trip ever. He's a writer of scripture. He's the greatest theologian of all. There's no one on earth who's ever understood the relationship between law and gospel better than Paul. He's the expert, right? He knows that the law never saves anyone. He knows that the traditions are nowhere near as important as these local Jewish believers seem to think they are. And I'll tell you what, he must have been getting pretty sick of talking about it as well. Everywhere Paul went, he was followed around by these Judaizers, following him around, wagging the finger at him, uh, misrepresenting his position, and uh, insisting that the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. He's be sick and tired of this. And here he is back in Jerusalem, and they've already got there before he has and poisoned the whole city against him. How does he respond? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't launch into a furious denial of the charges. This is outrageous. How dare you say these things? He doesn't do that. He doesn't publish a fiery treatise on justification by faith alone, you know, like in Galatia. He doesn't do that. You know, get it right, you buffheads. You you, you haven't understood what's going on. Let me tell you how this is. He doesn't say anything at all. Look. The believers ask Paul to please do what we tell you, verse 23, and Paul goes along with their advice. Since the charge against him is he plays a bit fast and loose with the law, he demonstrates respect by scrupulously observing all of the regulations that that the Jews thought was important to be cleansed, by going to the temple, and even by going so far as to pay the full cost of purification for four men that he's never met before. This is a lot of money. This is the cost of paying the Levite. This is the cost for each of the sacrifices for each of the men involved. So that's, you know, pigeons, lambs, bread, goats, meat and drink offerings. This is, this is a substantial amount of money and all out of his own pocket. Why does he do it? Well, over the years, of course, the commentators have joined in the pileup on Paul. Everyone bashes Paul uh, at every stage, even after he's dead. Um, And they've accused him of all kinds of things. They say, what's he doing in the temple? Doesn't he believe that, you know, Jesus has come and the temple's nothing, it's just a building and the rituals, it's all all, all an end for all of that now that the, the true reality has come? 
What's going on? Well, he's, he's a hypocrite. He's a coward. He's compromised. Yeah, He's a big man in Galatia. You died to law. How can you live in the law anymore? But as soon as he turns up in Jerusalem, all his principles are out the window and he goes along like a, a little pussycat out of fear. That's what he's been accused of. In fact, some people say the reason he ends up in jail is because God was teaching him a lesson he shouldn't have compromised. Is that what's going on? Of course not. The motivation that drives Paul's actions here is not fear or compromise or anything else. It's love. That's what we see here. These Jewish Christians, they knew, they were, they were sincere believers. They knew that it was Jesus alone who saved them through faith alone. It wasn't the law. It wasn't their works. It wasn't anything that they did. That's not the issue here. And yet because of their upbringing, they hadn't quite got to the point of letting it all go. They knew it wouldn't save them. and They certainly didn't want to burden the Gentiles. We see that in verse 25. They're not going to impose the law on anybody else. Yeah, they know that. But somehow they can't quite help but feel that these things must be important somehow. I don't know how it works. I can't articulate it. And Paul knows that's okay. They still felt conscience bound to do so. Moses had told them to circumcise their kids. We should do this. And what does Paul do? He doesn't force them to go against their conscience. He doesn't even try to persuade them that they're wrong here, even though they are. There'll be time for that. Basically, he bends over backwards to do everything he can to reassure them, whatever they might have heard about him, whatever concerns and anxieties they might have, that actually the differences between them are very, very small. And they're really on the same team. It's all Team Jesus now. And he's basically saying, look, if these things are important to you, then that's okay with me. Let's do it. Let's go with them because you're important to me. This is love, you see. Be like, um, I was thinking, I don't know if you particularly like bluegrass music. Just imagine you don't. And you just turn up at a church where, for whatever reason, they really love Jesus at this church and they love the banjo. What are you going to do? Be like turning up and saying, well, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm not going to make a fuss about it. You know what? I'm even going to pitch in and buy a bass banjo. I don't know if there is there. And a bass banjo amp so that you can have the full set. So every Sunday, praise God. Yep, we want to do this. Why? Because music is it's not that important, the style of music, what you do. What's important is that we're all Together, we, we love one another. We, we understand and we're on the same page. It's not fear or weakness or compromise. This is Paul loving his weaker brothers and sisters. This is Paul uh, becoming a Jew to the Jews. It's exactly what's going on here for the sake of love. And by the way, if you want to see the, the theory, we don't have time today to look at this, Behind all of this, just read Romans 14 and 15. It's fantastic. Maybe do that this afternoon and substitute um, food sacrifice to idols for taking part in customs and you'll see all of the reasons why Paul is doing this. It's all love. 
He says in Corinthians, Shall I, by my knowledge, destroy my brother or sister for whom Christ has died by wounding his conscience? 1 Corinthians 8.11 No way. If my non-participation in these customs causes my brother or sister to stumble, then count me in. That's what he's doing here. It's a beautiful response, don't you think? Well, the third reaction is not quite so good. When the rest of the Jews hear that Paul has turned up at the temple, verse 27, they stir up the whole crowd, they lay hands on him and they cry out, Men of Israel, help! We're under attack. This is the man who's been preaching everywhere against the people, against the law and against this place. Now, is that true? Nope, nope, nope. Moreover, they say, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, which again is not true. That was just mistaken identity. They got the wrong guy. Paul has been scrupulous to do everything to please these people. But never mind, verse 30, the whole city is stirred up and literally it says the whole city began to run together. You ever seen a city running this is a riot. This isn't a fun run. This is, this is a, an extraordinary scene. They seize Paul. They drag him out of the temple to kill him. So that it's only because of the uh, quick thinking of this Roman tribune who happens to be based in Jerusalem for just this kind of thing, who seizes him and, did you notice, literally carries him to safety. He literally lifts Paul up. There's just it's so crazy. And he just pulls him into the, into the castle. Uh, where, and, and that's the only reason he's not murdered on the spot. And then if you read on chapter 22, a few moments later, again, Paul, out of love, is trying to speak to his, his countrymen and explain again who he is, what he used to think, and what's changed now that he's met Jesus, and what happens? Verse 22, they raise their voices again, they fling the dust in the air, they shout, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And then in the next chapter, 40 men make an oath that they will not eat or drink again until Paul is dead. This is an extraordinary response, don't you think? It's an extreme and violent reaction. Just like that which, uh, of course, killed Jesus in the end, the mob. And Luke wants us to see exactly what the cause was. It's very interesting Luke, the historian, pinpoints it for us precisely in two places. What is it that causes these people to go mad? Two things. First, the idea of the nations coming in to God's presence. The idea of the nations coming into God's presence. Look at chapter 21, verse 28. Look at the accusation. Not only does he teach against the people, the place and the law, they say, he even brings Greeks into the temple. You see that? He even brings Greeks into the temple, defiling this holy place. That was the problem. The fact that we heard in the first reading, God's temple was always planned to be a, a house of prayer for the nations, remember? For the nations to stream to one day and find God's blessing and share with, with the Jews and the blessings, these people wanted nothing to do with that. Keep them out. The idea of the nations coming in, and the second problem is the idea of the gospel going out. Look at uh, chapter 21, 21. 
Because when does the crowd interrupt Paul and start rioting again? Luke is very precise here. He says in chapter 21, verse 22, up to this word they were listening to him. He's telling his story and they're listening. Which word? Well, look at verse 21. Right up until the moment when he talks about Jesus commissioning Paul and sending him out. What does he say? Go, for I will send you far away to the nations. And that's the moment that all hell breaks loose. That's what they couldn't bear to hear. That was what incites this murder and mayhem, the idea of the nations coming in and breaking up their holy little huddle, the idea of the good news of Jesus going out. So there you go, three very different responses. Joyful welcome and praise, humble and costly other person-centred love, and blind hatred and rage. What do they show us about what was really going on here? I've got a picture here, I think. Can we, do we have the picture? Has someone got the picture? There it is. Remember this a few weeks ago, not so long ago? What does this picture tell us um, about, what do you think? Most obviously, we see from Grace's reaction to the PM, do you remember, uh, what she thinks about uh, SCOMO, right? That's pretty clear. But it also told us something I thought was really interesting. It tells us how divided we are as a society. Did you notice there were some who sees this as yet another moment of Grace standing up against uh, male oppression and bullying and, uh, and, and standing up for that. And then there were others who were saying, she's just being plain rude to the Prime Minister. That's a pretty divided response, right? So it tells us a lot of things, one thing and how we react to it. Well, thank you. We can move on from that. In the same way, Luke shows us these reactions because he wants us to see that the, like the gospel itself, which is a message which divides... The news about God's grace being shown to others is a divisive message, which provokes the most extreme and opposite reactions. Why? It exposes the human heart. It's a bit like a spiritual rat's test. Yeah, so we don't tend to say, you got COVID or not. I can't tell by looking here. Yeah, hopefully none of you. Uh, um, we, We don't tend to say, well, how are you feeling? I feel great. No, no, no. We want to know how have your chemicals reacted with the magical chemicals in the, in the rat's test, right? One bar, you're clear, you're good to go, be blessed, etc. Yeah, Two bars, not so much, off you go, right? So how the response will tell us in the same way, Luke wants us to see that how people respond to God's grace, it shows us who we really are. What does it show us about these Jewish believers? Pretty obvious, isn't it? Their, their joyful praise and, and welcome showed that they knew God, that they'd experienced his mercy. It was just so obvious in the way they, they were now welcoming others and, and the, the news of the gospel going out because our God is first and foremost a God of mercy. You know, all of his attributes, all of his ways are perfect, but you know what? And there, so how can you rank perfect, right? But if you wanted to put one right up the top, it's mercy. It's grace. God says this himself. Mercy and grace is what he's all about. You remember the story Jesus tells about the, uh, the woman and the coin in Luke chapter 15? Remember, she loses a coin and she wants to find it again. She's in such a hurry. She doesn't even wait till the next day. It's dark. There's no electricity. It's going to be a hassle. She lights a lamp. She, she fiddles around until she can find it. She has to have it. 
or the man and the sheep. Remember, he's got 99 sheep. Why does he need another one? He's got plenty of sheep. No, no, no. He has to have that last sheep. And so he leaves the 99. He heads out and he finds that sheep and he hoists it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And then he calls his friends to say, rejoice with me. How good is this? I have found what I have lost. And Jesus says that is what God is like. That is how he thinks about these things. That is his heart. He's like that woman. He's like that man. He rejoices with all his heart. Each and every time a sinner repents and comes back to him. And the thing is, the more you get to know him, the more you become like him. The more that you take on his passions, the more that his heart becomes your heart. These people and their response to the news of God's grace going out showed who they really were. You see, here are the sons and daughters of God, of the God who, who, who shows love to the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And over the years, one of the great privileges of being a missionary, by the way, is to meet people like this who just love to hear of news of God's work in parts of the world they've never been among people they've never heard of, but they just delight every time they hear this. We also see it with Paul. What does Paul's response tell us about him again? This is a guy who has been transformed by the grace of God, right? Think about it. Saul the persecutor to Paul, this gentle, humble, meek servant. That's a massive change. Here's someone who has been loved and who now loves, you see. What about the Jews? What does their response show us? Well, that for all their claims and their zeal and their passion and their energy, at the end of the day, there was no spiritual reality to any of it. It was all just fake. It was all just external hypocrisy. These people didn't know God. They were nothing like the God they claimed to worship. Their heart was nothing like his. Friends, what about you? What about me? What does your response to the news that uh, in Christ, God is now at work in our world, reconciling men and women to himself, not counting their sins against them? What does your response in your heart that we can't see, what does this tell you about yourself? Do you hear news about people becoming Christian? Do you, do you love it? People you've never met. Do you, are you prayerfully engaged that people might come to know Jesus? Are you praying for, the, the, for missionaries, the spread of the gospel worldwide? Do you turn up at church thinking, great, who can I serve today? Who can I love? What, what, what needs to be done? What can I do to help others for the sake of the good? Or is it a bit more ho-hum? See, I suspect no one here, I suspect, I, I hope, no one here hates the idea of God's grace going out to everybody else. And yet if I'm honest about myself, I certainly fall short of what my heart shows me it should be like. It's, it's, it's not like Jesus' heart all that often, is it? Which is why I think I certainly need to confess and uh, keep coming back and asking for God to change me and make him more like he is. And I've been just thinking this week in response to this passage of one person who has wronged me and hurt me and I need to actually forgive. 
Because otherwise, what does that say about me? Who? How can you take forgiveness and not, not forgive? How can you receive grace and not show grace? It's unthinkable. It's impossible. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against They go together. So this week, let's uh, finish. I'm going to pray um, a prayer that God might make our hearts, those who love him, more like him, more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the extraordinary things that we see of you in this passage, of your great heart for sinners, that Christ Jesus came into this world to seek and save the lost, that you love sinners and you love when they repent and come back to you. Father, we thank you that you have loved us and forgiven us and welcomed us while we were still undeserving and far away. Father, we confess that too often uh, our hearts are not like yours. We, we are caught up with other things. We are focused on other things that are far less significant as you see it. It's the stuff of life. Father, please uh, forgive us. And Father, please help make us more and more like you and like your heart. Thank you for the, the wonderful examples we see of transformation. And Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who we can all think of, who just their lives are just full of uh, love and grace and kindness. And Father, just such an encouragement to see. Father, make us more like that as well. Help us to forgive those we find difficult and welcome whoever they might be because you have welcomed us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this. Thank you especially for him. We pray in his name. Amen.